Welcome to Pineland Underground, the official podcast of the United States Army's John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center and School and the best podcast in the military. Bold, real, and unrestricted. Support the resistance by liking and subscribing on whatever outlet you listen to us on. This helps us expand our listenership. We're your hosts, Major Bobby Tuttle, Sergeant Major Chuck Ritter, and welcome to Pineland Underground. All right, welcome back to Pineland Underground. Happy to be back. I'm Major Bobby Tuttle with Sergeant Major Chuck Ritter. We have an awesome episode today that we're going to dive into some really special topics with some great people and good friends of the special warfare community. And we are here with the most winning team in NASCAR history for the Cup Series. Is that correct, sir? That's yeah. right. All right, so we are currently up at the Hendrick Motorsports campus right now with some special guests that we're having on Pineland Underground. Some great topics we're going to dive into and really understand the parallels that we have across competition and NASCAR and the approach to that competition with how we approach competing and combat in the special warfare community. So it's my pleasure to introduce a good friend, a mentor, and also a friend of the Special Warfare Center, Mr. Marshall Carlson. Marshall serves as the president of Hendrick Companies, but he's been an active advocate for special operations community and oversees all of the aspects of Hendrick Motorsports and Hendrick Companies. Marshall, really happy to have you on the show today. Well, Bobby and Chuck, it's a, it's a complete honor uh, for me to be here. I'm suffering from a little Pineland allergies right now, so <laughs> good to go. But I want to tell you both and, and your listening group, um, you know, we don't get to say often enough or strongly enough how grateful we are for, for what you all do for what your colleagues do, for what the families in your command do. Nothing that we really value or hold dear in this country, certainly in racing, would be possible without the safety and security that you all provide to us. And just want to express that on behalf of all my teammates here, on behalf of Rick Hendrick. And so it's an honor for us to be here today. No, we're thrilled to have you. So, gentlemen, welcome to Pineland Underground. So, Marshall, who do we have with us today? I was hoping you might uh, introduce our, our your teammates before we kind of dive into a little bit about who they are and then what they bring and what they do for Hendrick Motorsports. Well, you have got the Hendrick Motorsports all-star cast here today, and this is this is so cool. I'm 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 excited to to listen in and and learn some stuff here. I've learned a lot from these these gentlemen over the years. And so uh, we got Chad Canals, who's now serving as our Vice President of Competition. Chad is a seven-time Cup Series champion, uh, formerly crew chief of the Team 48 uh, with driver Jimmy Johnson. Alan Gustafson. Alan is also a champion crew chief in Hendrick. Uh, he works with the nine team with uh, driver Chase Elliott, longtime Hendrick leader, and Cliff Daniels. Uh, came up through uh, race engineering here at Hendrick and, and has been serving now as Kyle Larson's crew chief on team number five, also a NASCAR champion. So I will tell you, Mr. Hendrick has an expression, you are what your record says you are. And I can tell you uh, unequivocally, uh, these are three of the most accomplished and successful racers in NASCAR. And uh, that's why I'm excited to listen in today. Yeah, all right. Chad, Allen, and Cliff, rock yeah. stars of the NASCAR world. Hey, really happy to have you guys on Pineland Underground. This is going to be cool. Yeah, glad to be here. It's going to be a lot of fun today. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, super excited. So we were sent all your bios beforehand, and they are extremely impressive. A little intimidating, right? So, I mean, I've got <laughs> some of them right here, which I've got this turned over, so I'm not intimidated. But <laughs> we did prep for this coming up here. We watched Talladega Nights and Days of Thunder last week. Well, you're perfect. Current. You're yeah. current. Spot on. I think you're um, done. <laughs> so one of our big questions, our first big question is, is Rubbin really racing? 
Yeah, that, you can't have racing without rubbing. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so that's just a true statement. Absolutely. That's, that's awesome. So that movie, for when was it made? Like twenty something years ago. So it was correct. Yeah, the cool thing about that movie, I mean, it was it was before us, but Mr. Hendrick basically had everything to do with making that happen. And, yeah. and Gary Dehart worked here. He supplied the cars and built a lot of the props. So yeah, Hendrick Motorsports fingerprints are all over that movie. And the cars and in, in here, right? The original car. From the yeah, movie? there's quite a bit of paraphernalia. I don't, I, I don't want to know. I don't know exactly what's still here, but there's some amazing things that they've got. Uh, Mr. H has got some amazing collectibles. So you know, that's a super iconic movie. You know, not only for everybody really but our sport for sure which was more true to to reality talladega nights or <laughs> <laughs> neither in, in all honesty neither neither are very close to reality i'm sure uh in your guys fields you know we watch war movies too right so <laughs> you you, you understand you know you know like tropic thunder's yeah, probably tro- the most <laughs> that's a perfect yeah <laughs> tropic thunder talladega nights so that that would be the best way to frame up that analogy. but then you take you're like man that's that's funny but that's kind of true which is there are, scary, there are right? instances in it that you're like ooh, really yeah oh, oh truth is always better than than the, the reality is always better than make the labor yeah. fiction right <laughs> that's that's the facts of it <laughs> real quick before we kind of kick off on, on, on another uh, more serious topic though in, in the introduction of chad knaus as the vice president of competition yeah like i love that can you tell me what the competition ecosystem looks like here and how you kind of spearhead that. Yeah, and obviously um, it's it's changed over the years. And I think that's the one thing that we do the best of other race teams in our industry is we're able to adapt and, and morph with the times. Uh, the way that we at Hendrick Motorsports had done it in the past, we were more independent silos for car numbers. And as we continue to grow, the industry changed. We saw that instead of having all these independent silos, getting all the smart people in a closer proximity to one another was gonna yield better results for us. It, it refined our, our direction. Um, it put the crew chiefs and the engineers closer together. So with guidance from Marshall and his experience, actually working with a lot of the military folks, he saw how, how you guys get together and, and you combine best practices, you combine resources, and you guys can attack more efficiently. We opted to go that way at HMS yeah. and it's, it was really difficult to start with. There is no doubt about it. I'll be the first one to say it. I was I was uh, probably one of the biggest ones that was difficult to manage through that time of bringing all of these independent silos together and saying, okay, you guys are going to now work together and we're going to try to work as a unit. But as you can fast forward now that we've done this for, I guess we're probably the ninth year, I'd say, Marshall, is that right? Yeah. It's it's amazing. And these two cats were, were late to the podcast because they were doing exactly what we want them to do, right? They are <laughs> sitting in a room and they are talking about what we're going to do at Hendrick Motorsports to improve our performance across the board. And and that's that's the biggest thing that we've been able to do through time. And, you know, we, we try to figure out ways to instill the core values in our teams, right? Uh, the way we want the teams to operate, the way we want them to look, the focus on performance and family and all of those things that we need to have. But then we allow the teams to be a little bit free mm-hmm. and have a, have their own identities. If you go into our team operations center and you look at the little war rooms that we've got for each car number, they are significantly different. They're so, they couldn't be any more different. Cliff's is very tidy and buttoned up. Allen's looks like a frat house. You know, they're all just a little bit different in the way they do things. And it's really fun for me in this role that I'm in to see how these guys operate and and to give them the tools that they need to, to go out there and perform and be successful because they are all unique. So the needs that he has with his driver, Cliff, 
and uh, the needs that Alan has with Chase and our other two guys, they're all very unique. They have their own cadence, they have their own style, and we want to make sure that we encourage that. Yeah. Um, we like that. We want them to, I, I liken it to uh, siblings, really. Yep, yeah. Um, I don't know if you have siblings or not, right? But if you're out in the, in the driveway and you're playing basketball and your brother comes out, you want to beat your brother. <laughs> but when the kid from down the street comes up and he wants to play ball, Mm-mm. man, it's two-on-one. Oh, yeah. Right? And we're going to go get that guy. That's family. And, and, right. And that's that's the way we try to encourage it. And it's, it's a lot of fun, and I really enjoy what I'm doing. Oh, I love that. Chuck, do you have something there? Yeah. So the major theme here is going to be culture, climate, and then structure, right? So I just want to ping off what you said. You said nine years ago. Earlier, Marshall, we talked about Accelerator. Is that when Accelerator came online and you guys? Yes, I'll tell you really what drove that was um, we were successful in that prior architecture where where they're very independent, um, high autonomy, high responsibility, high flexibility. Um, The challenge for us became when we started to try to solve problems in competition that you couldn't do on your own. So there were, as, as data became more prevalent, as the ability to test started to get cut back in our sport we couldn't just run out to the track and go solve problems for one of the cars we needed to be fusing and sharing information more much more it really became apparent you can't do that in a silo we, we have to put some sort of construct over the teams a team of teams to be able to support the new type of competition so we put a program together called accelerator and really these guys visioned it we kind of laid out the objectives uh, Chad was kicking and screaming along that. <laughs> this was when he was still a crew chief, but you know, a huge believer in all everybody. But you know, it was kind of like, hey, here's a great idea we've got. How do we make this work? Once we all got our heads around, we need to make this work. The reasons we need to make this work. Then we ha- got to have fun setting it up. How do we want to live together? One of the big things was necessity, right? I and mean, we had an arms race. We had a we had a four car arms race at the time. So you you had all these teams individual teams developing products and practices and you know whatever technology it is that goes on a car and the difference between the four of them were really minute but you have all these independent development cycles and expense that goes with it and management of that and it just was not a sustainable practice and we, we realized that racing each other like wow when you go to the track and you've got a different component in the car that's just this little bit just wasn't smart you know so a lot of it was out of necessity that we, we knew we, hey to get to to get to where we want to be together um, we've got to be more sustainable work together be more efficient concentrate our resource um, so that we produce a better product than everybody else in the military we call what you guys used to have at least silos of excellence you know essentially it's a silo that doesn't talk to one another and um, it's, it's kind of funny because you have to break down that barrier. It's a flattened communications and show transparency across each of those silos. And we, we talk about that a lot regularly because sometimes it's a break in communication. But as we had the tour just a little bit earlier and kind of seeing what we would equate to being like a, a company, a special forces company headquarters, you have within one you know kind of centrally located building, you have the headquarters itself and then the one long hallway in each team room each team is 12 special forces people with a different culture, a different attitude, a different swag or swagger, and a different kind of niche capability. And um, you know, they basically line each, each of the hallways. But you know, you got to open those team room doors so that people can come in and out. And hey, you just got back from this trip or competition in X country, and the other team down the hall did a different competition or event in a different country. Well, let's go share what you just learned from that. 
How was it deploying out? How were things on the ground? How was your preparation? And sharing and really kind of just being as collaborative as possible. So we totally saw a ton of similarities and it very much mirrors a special forces company headquarters and just viewing and stepping inside each of your kind of team rooms and seeing there's a different feel, different swagger, but you know that common space where people are having that incidental contact and running into each other, striking up conversation, getting to know one another, and that makes you know the really the family a better a better place to be. Yeah, that's well said, and I think <clears throat> one of the things that I would add to the conversation is when we put the new program in place, and you know there was a lot of like Alan said a need around you know prioritizing specific development of components or best practice or whatever it would be. You know, one of our, our fears uh, of the teams was, okay, are we all being forced to have to do everything the exact same? Mm-hmm. Like, is some of the creativity, is some of the innovation lost in the initiative just to get everyone on the same page, right? No, 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 you know, we don't just have to do everything the exact same and be on the same page. That's where the fostering of some of the individual team identity comes into play. Because yes, we're all trying to accomplish the same goal that particular weekend, you know, for the scope of the season, you know, we're all trying to accomplish the same goal, win races and win championships, but at the same time, having the variety and having the specific identity of the teams to say, okay, well, this team does take a little different approach to solve the same problem. And and in using that perspective or that experience, which may be different than than another team's, when we all get back together and we get to collaborate on, you know, solving that problem or coming up with that solution, that new part piece, you know, or, or just innovating a new concept, you have that variety. And, and that was, you know, a little bit of the reservation at first from our teams kind of coming together in that way of, you know, will we still have that capability? What will that creativity be able to look like versus everybody have to, has to be the same. Um, we've had a joke, a running joke, you know, the same police. We don't want the same police to come get us, right? And <laughs> we all just have to be the same. Like, no, 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 we, we, we can run the same part because we've put all of these unique, creative, innovative experiences, identities together to make that part, you know, well-rounded in itself, whatever that may, may be for whatever, you know, problem it's trying to solve. So that was another key component for the implementation of all this is, is to, you know, allow those things. I like that. We're, real quick, just kind of follow up on that. So um, what, do you, what do you and, uh, and Alan look for when you're creating that team? that's going to compete weekly what are kind of some of the aspects obviously you want the technical skills but what are you looking for when you bring the right person on to be part of your team and operate together as a as a, as a cohesive element so in my crew chief experience i think i'm four or five years now into being a crew chief allen and chad have a lot more just overall years of experience of, of seeing the change that i'm about to describe it's kind of twofold so what i've learned to experience the last few years that can look a little different each year based on just natural turnover of, of life with people. Here at Hendrick Motorsports, we have a great culture, a great working environment. Typically people come here and want to stay here for a long time, but life can still change for individuals within that framework. So I've had guys on, on our team the last few years that got married, had kids, and, and want to come off of the, the road. That's the term we use coming off the road of a regular traveling person within the core you know, 12 man framework that is our team. And they can still pursue other employment opportunities here globally within our company, engineering, mechanical systems, whatever it may be. Some of the the way that you kind of manage, you know, within your individual group does look different year to year. However, we still, you know, each of us operate with the, the global principles and values that, that are special to our company, to, to how we go about competing. And then we still kind of have our own identity, you know, and, and some of that is a little more personality based to the driver, to the crew chief, whatever, 
you know, we, we all have expectations for the, the standards of which our teams or our individual team needs to meet to compete weekly. Like there are still certain standards of what it takes to win sure. and to win consistently. And and yes, our execution of getting to that standard may may have a little different flavor depending on the week or, or the, the people involved. But you know, fostering the environment where people see the standards, know the standards, they can be bought into that, the core principles and values of what it takes to do that. And, and then at the end of the day, our season is almost 40 weeks long. It's a marathon. Yeah. You, you know, you have to be able to have the passion and enjoyment in those pursuits. Otherwise, you just get burnout. Burnout is so uh, frequent within our industry. At any point during the season, even Chad being on the road less now, just with the, the responsibilities of his job, I'm sure he gets burnout halfway through the season just like we do. So, so you have to you know, know how to keep it fresh mm. and, and have the passion and energy um, within the team. And, and, and that can look different in a lot of ways from you know, a little bit of time off here or there, or different team activities, but you know, still meeting the standards of expectation uh, of what it takes to win, and that has what has brought our company, you know, really to where we are today, and and to be able to sustain it for so long. Yeah, nice. Cliff, well said. And w- everything you described is exactly like a special forces company, right? You have company headquarters, but then you have six different teams, all with their own little personality and culture, and you've got to somehow allow them to be their own things while still maintaining a set standard, right? So it sounds like what you do is exactly what we do, and that's always how do you, you know, we should went down your team rooms, everybody is different. Like, oh, this is the free thinkers, this is these guys. But at the end of the day, winning's winning, and it's got to be that it's the same goal and end state, right? So that's that's interesting that it's pretty much exactly the same. Yeah, and, and I would argue that we're better off to have that variety of the teams, mm-hmm. you know, because I, just because I, I do business a certain way with the five team and Alan does business a certain way with the nine team, I do think that there is so much that we are better off of the five team from being able to share in their experience and some of their methodology. And I would hope the same, you know, the other way around and and, and having that variety, you know, kind of always gives you a good litmus test of, okay, if, if we are, you know, we have developed this new part, how did that team execute it? How did that team you know, maintain it or, or evaluate it that could just be different than my mindset or our thought press process that could make us better moving forward? Yeah, you guys? yeah, for me, you know, on, on the team side, I think that if you, you want to look at the individuals themselves and what I look for is just those key personal characteristics, work ethic's huge, right? You know, I want to get people have a really good work ethic. I want to have guys who are committed. I want to have guys who are focused on uh, the job at hand. Obviously, the technical skills are a big deal, but I've learned through my experience is, is I don't try to pigeonhole someone and say, hey, you know, this person needs to do exactly what this job is described to do much like Cliff's describing the diversity between the the car number teams you know I like that diversity in my team and it's it's fun uh, and I've learned a lot by bringing guys in who maybe don't have exactly what you think you need and I can shift around those responsibilities a little bit but if you get good people good quality people who will work hard uh, for each other for the end goal of the team uh, and then shifting those responsibilities around a little bit help share that load and make it new. If somebody drops out uh, and you bring somebody new in and their their skill set's just a little bit different, well then you can shift that and the other team members absorb a little bit different responsibility than they had. So they're reinvigorated, they're excited, they're ready to go. And then that person comes in and will look at things differently, right? I mean, if they don't have the exact same mold, personality, skill set as what you had before, they'll look at things differently and and really make you think and challenge you. And and I, I think that's really, a good way to go about it. So those core uh, assets of the person or, or you know, 
if they have those, I think the flexibility to, to, to work on their skill set a little bit usually works out to be the, to, to be a benefit in my opinion. Now, the pit crew, like, it's a bit more specialized. Like, sure. you, you can't, you know, we're not talking about, hey, you know, this one racing here doesn't have any experience in, you know, analytics. He's got experience in vehicle dynamics or whatever it is. Like, that's a little bit different than, hey, you know, this guy's got to hang a tire, a jet car that's super specific and a super specific physical attribute. But I think in general, I just like, you know, good people. If you have good people, regardless of, of uh, uh, their skill set, that are willing to work hard, you're going to be successful and, and you can challenge them or set them up in a position to succeed. So real quick, just goes into the whole selection hiring debate that everybody has, right? Like what's more important, somebody's skills on a resume or their character, right? But it sounds like what you're saying is you'll take somebody that has those core, like that work ethic and ability to apply themselves and you can teach them what to do. And, you know, there's another guy in here, Roberto, that we're going to have a, hopefully a whole other episode on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he trained in one thing, and now he's doing something totally else. But He uh, found his genius, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you did a better job <clears throat> cutting, cutting through it than I did. But, yeah, ha having that character, I mean, I think that's the key. That's the key. If you don't have that character, you can be the, you know, look, it's like, no disrespect, but it's like the NFL wide receiver thing to me, right? I mean, how many – wide receivers do you see that are super, super talented but are destructive because if they're not, their egos are so big, if they're not the center of the room, then you, they're just not going to be happy and the drama that comes with it ultimately is you know, just a cancer. So I, I think the being able to teach somebody that skill set, being able to put somebody in the environment uh, to be successful is way more important. If they have that character, I think you can make it go. I've seen, I've been able to work out more issues with guys who have less skill and more character than I have with with the opposite and had and more skill and less character, you know, hand, hands down, not even a, uh, not even a debate. It's really interesting to me if I think this with with everybody I've ever spoken to in business, sports, racing, this is pretty much global, right? And one thing I've really noticed at Hendrick Motorsports is that those things get weeded out almost organically, right? I've probably released, I know I've released so many people being for being jerks as opposed to not knowing how to do a job, mm. right? And it's almost like as you embed somebody into our organization, we give them the opportunities, we give them the tools to be successful. But if they don't bite on the culture, typically they end up leaving themselves, right? We don't even have to worry about dismissing them or getting them out of the program because they just don't fit. And they realize that pretty quickly. It's a really unique culture that we've got of people with very, very high intangibles. And it's, it's awesome. And it's really fun to see these guys pull in new talent what Alan is referencing right now about shifting responsibilities, he's living it right now. He had a, an engineer that worked with him for 12 years? 14 years. 14 years, yeah. who was his guy, his right-hand guy. And they went and they won championships, they won races, they did everything they needed to for 14 years. And now he's shifted into a new level of responsibility within our company, and Alan's filling that void with people that he had internally at the team. I like that. Yeah, and it's a it's a challenge, right? I mean, it's, it's interesting to go through because, you know, I'll, I'll just – you, know, you, you just get lazy. You take for granted, like, this guy covered ground for me, right? So now I've got to cover that <laughs> yeah, ground and we've got to fill that space. So yeah, I had a conversation with Chad about this weekend, and it's like, hey, I know we're going to get there. It's going to be uncomfortable for a bit till we get there. But same thing, you know, filling that role with a really high-character person who's willing to do the work and who's willing to learn. And, you know, when Chad was talking about that, I just thought, like, you know, when you handle a situation, everybody's going to make a mistake or something's going to go wrong. If you have somebody who's high-character uh, and has those good intangibles, you can have a learning moment in that situation, right? And you can get better. But if you have somebody who's super egotistical and maybe doesn't want to see that, hey, I potentially did something wrong, or they think that they're so good, or been told they're so good, 
those learning situations just don't exist. Like, you just how don't do you progress. select for that? Though, like, what are the indicators for like hiring or looking at people to <laughs> say, okay, this guy probably isn't who we want? So I'm not good at it. So I've learned. <laughs> I've learned over time is just to have to try to backfill a little, right? I mean, juniors, interns, people around, like. I have a hard time believing, and I'm, I'm sure there's somebody, maybe the uh, mentalist we had in, in the shop <laughs> the other week, can sit down with somebody over a 30-minute interview and tell me, A, are they good or do they have good character? I know like there's certain things, and we, we have, we've, we've had a lot of education on this, like, hey, these are the certain attributes you want to look for to vet these people out, and I agree with that. But, man, when it comes down to it, you don't know until you're in the squeeze. Uh, and, and I think you just, if you've been able to work around somebody, and even if it's in a different capacity, so that upward mobility in, in our company is huge. And I think that's something that we've always fostered since I've been here. I, I was a product of that. Jai was a product of that. Cliff was a product of that. I think that gives us a high success rate because you, you're not hiring in at a top position, right? The upward mobility is you're hiring at a lower position that you have a little bit of more grace or room for error if it doesn't go right. And then with the upper mobility, when you do make these transitions, they're much higher success rate because you've got the experience with the people, you understand what they're about, what their character is, what they do, how they work, how they'll fit in, and you can set them up to succeed. But just to go cold and hire somebody for a top position is tough. Would you guys kind of mind tapping into a little bit about the culture of Hendrick Motorsports. I've had the pleasure of hearing uh, Marshall speak a few times at the Special Warfare Center uh, at our leading leaders panel, and he focused on simplicity, clarity, and alignment. And Chad, you really just brought up, you know, we're, we're looking to get the right people to bite off on that culture. And I've noticed in meeting the people on, in, you know, this Hendrick Motorsport family, a lot of the, the right aspects are kind of baked in. Everyone's kind of bought into it, obviously. Can you guys talk to us a little bit about what the culture of your family organization is? And then how do you, how does that bleed down to every aspect uh, and every kind of teammate within the organization? Yeah, I think if you, I'm trying to think of the best way to articulate this, you know, Mr. Hendrick always says family first, right? And I think that is a real, uh, important aspect that quite honestly I didn't really understand until I got a little bit older um, you know I was I didn't get married until I was in my 40s um, I was you know head down focused on motorsports racing winning and that was was my job but Mr. Hendrick being the mentor that he is to all of us at Hendrick Motorsports is kind of drilling these things as I'm going through life and as I matured and got a little bit more aware of my surroundings, you realize that if you bite off on that family first, and then you realize that when you come into work, if you focus on performance, those things really blend in pretty quickly, right? Because every decision you make, you say, okay, how is this gonna impact us as, us as a family, right? Not, not just your personal family, but us as a family, and then how does this impact performance? When you roll through that and you, you populate that down through the masses, it, it really guides the company pretty quickly. Uh, one thing that I think is really important to note is we give out a 20-year watch. And we just had a ceremony, I think three months ago, where we handed out eight, I believe it was eight 20-year uh, watches. Oh, wow. And as we sit back and we're like, okay, 
Uh, Mr. Hendrick actually showed me this. At this point right now, we've got over 120 people currently employed at Hendrick Motorsports that have 20-year watches. Wow. Okay, so think about that. As you go through and you realize many past the 20 years, right? So, you know, there were guys that got 20-year watches, you know, eight years ago that are still still grinding it out, no problem. That culture and that, that, that baseline that we've got of how we do it, it just permeates through the company. And, and it's led by example. Everybody is a leader in their own right. And as long as you get people, you hold them accountable, you make sure they understand what the target is, you make sure they understand the path, everybody will lead as long as they buy in. And just like what I mentioned earlier, with these guys sitting in that room together making decisions as a collective group, when they can walk out of that room and say, okay, this is the direction we're going, and our team see four leaders of our company come out of a room and they're locked in arms and say, okay, this is the path we're going on, the buy-in is immense. Powerful. Yeah, it's strong, right? So everybody sees that and everybody's like, okay, I guess we're doing it, right? And that's those types of things that we've learned over the years because it wasn't always that way. The culture was there. The, the mantra per se has always been there and it's been bred through Mr. Hendrick. But the way that these guys have, have changed it over the years is, is unique to themselves. I think one thing that you, you talk about the culture and the family atmosphere and Mr. Hendrick has started that and he's instilled that. There's countless examples of that. But the one thing that he does that I think more than any other human being I've ever met is family is great for everybody when it's good for them, right? When you have a family to fall back on, when you have you have the needs, right? That's family. Well, he has the ultimate power and the responsibility. He's super gracious, right? Over the scale the other way. What I'm saying is so when family isn't good for Mr. Hendrick, right, which that comes up, it's not good to be family, he's always there. So he's always there more often than not, right? I mean, it's it's probably 80%, maybe 100%. He's giving, 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 giving. So that family, like that's kind of cliche-ish unless there's the substance behind it where he supports somebody when they're down or he supports somebody who has supported them. You know, he doesn't have to. He doesn't have any written obligation to him. He doesn't have a contract obligation to him. He doesn't have to fly a guy home because his parents uh, are ill or, or find a oncologist for a guy's mother or whatever it is, Like, but he does. Mm. So the top, the family at the top is like in every essence of the word, he sets that example glaringly. So if you just emulate that to a decent amount, you, you're you're doing a pretty good job. Yeah, in, in some of my leadership and endeavors of trying to do a, just a better job with our team, I, I've learned, and I think Marshall has articulated this before. I've certainly heard Mr. Hendrick talk about it a lot. You know, the leader has to set the vision, and, and then it's twofold. The leader has to lead it out and communicate it. And what these guys are describing, Mr. Hendrick has set the vision of family and, and winning, and, and he lives it out by going above and beyond on the family aspects, everything Alan just described. And, and then on the winning aspect, holding us to the standard, but but he lives it out with how he, you know, Mr. Hendrick has his own work ethic. You know, he's visible. People see him involved in the company, you know, from the family side of things for when, when somebody does have an ill family member or when we're trying to find the next step of what it's going to take to increase our performance and, and, and be more competitive. Um, he's always there. And so then that message is already being communicated through his work ethic, through his daily grind to us and, and, and to us as leaders of our teams and within the company, you know, we continue the vision and, and then live it out and, and communicate it. And, and people really are receptive to both of those things, right? The guys on, on all of our teams love to know 
the vision, where are we headed, whether it's, you know, the weekly vision, the daily vision, the yearly vision, whatever that may be, kind of that, you know, very genuine, realistic, uh, just communication of, of where we are, where we're headed. And, and then, you know, you're living out the, the steps to go to go accomplish those goals. And, and that is something that Mr. Hendrick lives out daily with our company, that when you kind of take a step back and look at it and all these things that these guys are describing, it's like, wow, if you, you embody just a little bit of that, you're, you know, you're, you're moving the ball. So I want to break this down for some of our listeners because this is fascinating. And talking about culture, you know, there's all different types of cultures, culture of family, culture of winning. It's actually pretty complicated when you break it down. But if we're going to make it simple, in the military we have a, a concept called mission command, right, which is having a centralized intent to enable decentralized operations. So it is. People try to overcomplicate it, right? But it sounds like that's what you do here. And from what you just said, people love that. People love the vision, but then also – you have the autonomy to do it in your own little team rooms in your own different way, but everybody's still achieving that vision and it drives you to have that vision, but you also have the autonomy and the trust to be able to accomplish that. That's kind of what I'm getting. And, and from what you're saying, you got 20 year watches, people love what they do. And you've also got these different cultures of everybody taking care of each other too. Is that? Yeah, well said. And, and something else that that's a diff- different angle that I wasn't really thinking of in, until you just kind of mentioned that. Sometimes I, I've even been asked this recently. Um, when you give people, when you give you know an employer, an individual enough autonomy, you know within your team, within the company, um, you know what about the guardrails, or or what about them abusing the system, mm-hmm. you know, and what does that look like? Good point. And in in our experience, and and I think I could probably speak for all of us, when when you provide the correct steps in place of the vision, and and you you, you create an environment where everyone that is a part of the team or the company is living out the vision, people naturally want to be accountable to that. So, so then people feel a lot more inspired and a lot more comfortable to carry out their duties, um, to want to, to, to take things to the next level if they don't feel like you're always going to shoot down an idea or circle back behind them, you know, or, or have to, to try to make them look over their shoulders when you, you know, present them with that uh, environment to go be creative and, and to, to learn and grow and, and push boundaries. And, and yeah, certainly sometimes, you you know, to be responsible, we got to pull things back in. But um, ha- having that environment makes people want to be accountable to it. Um, and, and so it's kind of twofold of having the passion to, to want to be there and, and do it. But at the same time, like we just don't have hardly any cases of people wanting to uh, abuse the system, if, if that makes sense of, um, you know, things that other corporations, other teams might experience, you know, people leaving early, showing up late, whatever it is, people want to be here. People want to do a really good job and, and meet the standards that we have because it's it's such a common thread throughout us and, and how we operate. Yeah, I'd share too. I, you know, one of the mo- most unique things about the organization really is what Rick Hendrick has patterned in here over decades. Extremely successful leader, businessman, racer, Hall of Famer. I mean, every record you can think of. And he'll describe leadership uh, as servant leadership. So it, it's an upside down triangle. And he says, I'm at the bottom. And everyone else in the organization, my job is to support them and make sure that they're successful. And these three leaders in here feel that way that it's just that is the pattern in our organization. Someone who comes in and says, hey, I'm in, I'm in charge of, I run, everyone does the way I say, that is not in our culture. That's not in our DNA. Now, at the same time, you've got folks sitting in this room and, and throughout this company who are extremely competitive, <laughs> who want to be no, numero uno, right? But to combine that with that servant leadership mantra of really, it doesn't matter what I think, what matters is what the people I'm supporting think. 
So, so we, we actually, when we were doing that transformation, these guys will remember, you know, there's some, some learning, some we need to start thinking about things a, a different way. So we ran an offsite down near Talladega, Alabama at some, some ranch out there. And, you know, we all went yeah. uh, shooting sporting clays or yeah, something yeah. and all were horrible at that. So we all got <laughs> that sounds fun. humbled quickly. And we had a performance coach in there from Maxwell System about servant leadership. And, and we're, we're starting to try to think new ways, right? Try to think about problem solving in new ways. And he went around the room and asked us to all talk about leadership, right? Talk about servant leadership. And we all did, and you know, we felt great. Right? I felt great about what sort of leader I am, and everyone did. Took a little break, came back, he goes, all right, here's what I want you to do. Talk about leadership. Think of three people that you support. If I sat down with them and asked you about your leadership, what would they tell me? It's a great interview question, too, and by the way. It was <laughs> as quiet as this, wasn't it, guys? You remember that, right? And so he really got us thinking about how to put that servant leadership into practice regularly, every day. And, and, you know, I still talk about it. He, he shared, hey, ultimately as a leader, you're responsible to provide clarity, simplicity, and alignment to those people that you're supporting. And, and these, these folks do that every day, right? Those guys are trying to build a race car out there, set up a race car, run simulation, get tires right, get ready to support the team. And they need from us clarity, simplicity, and alignment. So this is all back to this Mr. Hendricks kind of mantra of servant leadership, right, is, is we are here responsible. Cliff, you just said it too, right? People want to perform here. They want to be a part of the system. Well, that's because the folks that, that, are, that they're accountable to are thinking about how they see the world, right? How do I feel when I walk in here? I'm responsible for that as a servant leader. And the other thing I'll add to that is like when you empower those people, like my individual passion as a competitor and as a leader can only extend but so far. And with the you know the servant leadership philosophy, when you are able to allow someone else to feel empowered and to have their own passion, the extension of the passion for winning is now far beyond me because you add more individuals to it. So all of that just permeates throughout the culture of our company, where it's not just driven from oh man you know Chad's just the most passionate leader. No no, no. Chad helps embody that passion for winning and empowers people to have their own passion for winning. And now that's gonna reach so much farther than any one individual. Yeah, I absolutely love that. So part of that, you know, and Chuck kind of mentioned how we kind of call that mission command, but it comes down to a few different factors. Uh, trust is obviously one of those, but getting to know your people, right? Getting to know them, spend time with them, see what actually makes them tick, um, see what their life is like outside of just the work environment. What are their distractions at home? You know, what are, what are the other things that could weigh on them? when you're going into preparation for that competition. But I think it comes down to another thing too, which is uh, communication. I think communication is absolutely critical to understand what that vision is. It's communicated well, it's received well, and it's, it's kind of, it's a very informative two-way communication across kind of the leader of the organization and the people who are actioning the things out there. Got to ask about management by strengths a little bit. Ask if you can kind of highlight yeah. some of that, Marshall. So management by strengths. Here's another thing that's probably way ahead of its time that that Rick Hendrick implemented in his organizations decades ago. So this is a system where we all during our inbounding or on, onboarding in the organization, you know, take a 20 minute little simple test, and the test is is statistically incredibly accurate over time. Uh, I mean. Tens of thousands of people have taken this, and it, it essentially talks about how I share and receive information. It is purely about 
driving high-performance communications. It's not my future ability to be a leader or a great engineer or do any tasking. It is purely about the makeup and composition about how I give and receive information. So throughout our organization, uh, all of all of us have taken it, all our teammates have taken it in every role, and there's a little color chart and a little graph that we all learn how to read and understand. And again, Bobby, this, this is an element of servant leadership. Think about it, right? It, we are patterning that it is more important for me to be able to tune my communications to the recipient than to be super thoughtful about what I'm saying and how I'm saying it, right? I, it's going to be ineffective if, if how I deliver it is not received efficiently and in a way that that person uh, can understand. So uh, 16 archetypes, I could tell you what the color is of these, my three teammates sitting in here. There's, a, there's a, some commonality in certain archetypes. This is a really, really important part of putting our culture into daily practice, right? And so on the pit boxes at the track, these folks have the run out of their teams, the, the color on there. And I can't tell you how many times I've, I've been in a situation where something's just not getting through to one of my colleagues. I'm, I'm stumbling with this over time. And I'll go back and look at that and go, there we go. Ah, that makes sense. Ah, retune how I'm sharing that. And now they're tuned into receiving it. And so it's efficient and it's all built around high performance uh, communication. But also just that, that, that element that is, it really doesn't matter how I think it's coming across. What's important as a servant leader is how that recipient is, is bringing that inbound to, to, their, to their thinking. Yeah, and there's another part of that real quick. You had asked earlier about how we do our our new teammate selection. For years, I would give, and I still do to this day, I, I give the MBS test before I sit down with the interview with the folks because everybody's completely different. Somebody that's highly extroverted can sit down and do a job interview, and, man, they'll be chatty. You'll think, man, this guy's got it going on. Well, the fact of the matter is he's just a chatty guy. You know, he can tell you he knows everything that's going on. Where conversely, if you've got a gentleman that's or a lady that's paced or highly structured, maybe a pinch more reserved, their extrovert is, is really low, you need to know that. So as you're going through that, that, uh, that onboarding process, you can be like, okay, I need to dig in a little bit deeper to get this person to tell me what they know. Try to have a communication with them that they're more comfortable with. So it's, it's, it's a really good tool to see. And this doesn't have anything to do with the person, again, like Marshall said, but it really lets you know how to dig deep into that person before you get them in line. This whole thing has kind of cultivated something back in the last episode we did. And I just want to put this out there and see what your thoughts on it are. So we interviewed some people that we respect, and we always try to break everything down to its lowest common denominator because you can make things really complicated. But how do we simplify the discussion of trust? And what we came up with was no matter if, if Bobby's my boss or if he's working for me, trust, you can break it down to if he's competent and I know that he cares, that equals trust. If, if I know my boss, uh, he cares, but he sucks. I'm not going to trust him. But and if on the flip side, if he knows what he's doing, he's competent, but he doesn't care. I'm not going to trust him. Same thing. If he's working for me, I know that he works really hard, but he doesn't know what he's doing. I'm not going to trust him. And really, we said that that's what it is. Sim- simply, I mean, what are your guys' thoughts on that? Uh, I've I've said this for years. There's only three things in life that you cannot buy. That's trust, love, and respect. Mm-hmm. All of that stuff has to be earned. And you can, you can buy time with machinery, you can buy time with resource, you can, you can do all of those things, but 
in order to get those things, you got to earn that with somebody. And that's through, you know, being vulnerable, showing them that you aren't a manager, show them that you're a leader, right? You know, show them that you're dependable, lead by example, those things right there. That's, that's the core of it all, right? If you understand that you can't go and just buy somebody's, you know, faith, you can't buy somebody's uh, desire. You maybe can for a short period of time, mm-hmm. but that's not going to be withstanding. I agree with Chad. He did a great job. And I, I think that the just to touch on it, it's it's, it's not an easy thing to to uh, to have, and it's earned, right? It's over time. I have a hard time think of any situation where I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a open-minded, positive person by nature. So yeah, you want to trust everybody from the get-go, and I think I have that opinion. But to really trust somebody with, you know, extreme details or responsibilities, you know, you have to earn that, and it has to come over time and uh, to me, the way you handle the, yourself in situation, it, it goes back in, in every situation, somebody has some uh, some uh, some power and with that power comes the responsibility to do the right thing and that's the character, right? So when you're in that position of power and you have the opportunity to do the right thing that doesn't benefit you and benefits you know the, the, the other person in that relationship, that's where the trust I feel like comes from and that's what I was describing about Mr. Henrik and one of the biggest lessons I've learned from him is when you are in that position of power, right, that's when you have a huge responsibility to do the right thing. And if you do the right thing, even though, especially if it doesn't benefit you, then people will see that and they'll ultimately trust that you're going to do the right thing in every situation, right? Because that's the, the obvious one if you're going to choose that you do something that's that's selfish. No, well said. I like that too. Yeah, th- these guys are both spot on. I, I guess really about the only thing that, that I would add is one of the ways that we've been building trust on our team and it's actually kind of fun when it happens and, and it's a lot centered around what Alan said about doing the right thing and, and to Chad's point, earning it. I, I love when some of the little things go wrong at the shop. We're not in competition, right? It's not mission critical yet, could be, but when those little things happen, we actually have a good time um, being able to talk through it as a team, use it as a learning environment, you know, a learning example um, and, and knowing that our response as a team or as individuals conducting our duties is going to be to do the right thing, right? To rectify the situation, go back, fix something if you have to, find the right path moving forward, whatever it may be. So then when you're in battle, you know, the communication is very simple. Hey, you know, this is wrong. We missed this. That's not right. Okay, do we do, do, we do the right thing to fix it? And, and that's kind of the, the foundation of the trust that it's exciting when we get a chance to do it when it's not mission critical because that's helping lay a good foundation. And then, yeah, you, you still have a, a high responsibility as a leader for your conduct and your actions when you're in the mission critical times of, of how, to, how to overcome those things or, or respond to those things. But a lot of it can be, you know, kind of built before you get to that point. No, absolutely. Cliff, you, might you have like an example of like one of those small things you guys kind of recognize and work through so we can kind of better visualize that? Yeah, I mean, I just think as teams, I'm not going to give you one specific example, but I think it's just part of how we prepare race cars to go fast and win every week. There are so many little details that can be critical. And having the pathways of communication so open and, and Marshall said it well with the MBS structure. I've always tried to be aware of how a person is, is receiving it and, and always maturing and growing in that process. Um, but but weekly, there are going to be things that you know somebody will find, hey, you know this is a little off, or hey, this didn't come out how we expected it to. Immediately having the right people in, in that you know particular circumstance to communicate through it, retrace the steps, hey, all the way from the start, 
this may have been wrong or from the start this is right and and we you know missed something that was on a setup sheet you know a simple typo or a, or a misread of an assignment whatever it may be typically when those moments happen when it's not super invasive to our time i try to say hey you know so and so come on over here you you two let's let's huddle up let's talk about this really quick all right so from the start this is wrong how can we look you know forward next time and, and see from the start how to get that right or, or really kind of tailored to whatever the circumstance may be. I, I don't know that I can think of one particular example because that's just an ongoing process for us every week. You know, we, we have a high volume of cars, high volume of parts of people, so many hands touch our cars before they get to the racetrack that our responsibility, you know, at times is to, to take what we have and, and make the best of it moving forward or sometimes you have to look at what you have and, and understand what could be wrong with it and how to fix it so certainly circumstantial but always great uh, to, to learn from and again the foundation of what that can provide happens when you get to the racetrack and then you are in competition and, and just knowing you know the, the personalities the communication styles of how to, to lead the team to respond to it knowing how the team can respond in, in doing the right thing to, to use Alan's phrase. Bobby, let me mention too, just think about the construct where these, these guys are competing and their teams are competing very different from other types of sports, right? So in, in racing, in, in, our, in our series, every weekend, everyone is competing at the same place at the same time. It's not a one-on-one. Right. It's one against 36 others, right? So you've got to bring your A game against the best out there that weekend. Everyone, one place, one time. When they get on, uh, on, on, the, on the bus coming home, after the race, um, they have been ranked definitively in a final, obvious, and very public way against all of the competition. It's not, well, we were just a little off here or there, lost against these guys, but beat these other guys the week before. No, it is a constant drumbeat of where exactly are you? Where is your best against the complete field? Also, they will start a NASCAR race whether they're there or not. They don't care. It's not like a football game, hang on, somebody's running late, we're gonna hold kickoff. No, this, this, the series we race in, you know, if you're not there, the race is going on. So this, this constant churn has built these systems in where, as, as Cliff said, they have got to get really good at measuring degrees of wrong. Nothing is ever quite clear unless you win the race. It's easy to measure degrees of right. Degrees of wrong, they've built a, a system and a practice about being able to segregate and, and understand across all the elements. In addition, they're competing with humans, the driver, and the pit crew athletes, as well as a massively complex machine, the race car with an engine and powertrain. So, I mean, it's just this significant undertaking, but I think it can't be uh, understated how much time and the level of competition drives the way that they run these systems. There's no time for for people to be playing, you know, hide this bit of information from someone else. It's just, it, we will we'll get eclipsed. There's no time for not being transparent. They have got to be, it's a constant 40 week grind against everyone's A game every weekend at the same place with machines and people. And so it's, it's fascinating. I have huge respect for, for these leaders and then how they conduct that, how they lean into, I have to be able to inspire a group of people to want to come back uh, we've had some dark times. You know, a couple of years ago, um, we were behind the eight ball. Our teams were consistently getting beat. By the way, these leaders are the best in the sport. They lose more than they win, mm. right? You lose more than you win. It's just a fact of racing. So we got to get real good at, at understanding 
where we can get better and how we keep people motivated that way. That's actually an amazing segue to one of our primary topics is how do you guys deal with losing, right? You lose and, you know, you can fail, but you can't equate that to defeat, right? Uh, people that are generally successful can take that and better themselves instead of, you know, it's that, that learning environment, right? So how does, how does Hendrick do that? For me, you know, when you lose, it's easy to improve, right? I mean, I, I think that's it's it's actually harder when you're on a big win streak to keep the motivation than it is mm -hmm. to be motivated when you're getting your ass kicked up and down the, the racetrack, <laughs> right? To be honest with you, I mean, if if, if you lose as a competitor at, at a race and you don't come back motivated and have obvious things to work on, then yeah, you're not worth your salt, right? To me, the harder part of it is when, when we've all fortunately been there is when you you have that continuous improvement right that's a big deal to me if you're continuously improving you're going to get there right regardless of where you start just continuously get better continuously get better continuously get better you're going to get where you want to be when you get there then it, the harder part is sustaining that excellence right because that's where the complacency is bred that's when you're comfortable that's when the egos come out that's when you listen to the noise one of our old pickery coaches had a great phrase i loved he said don't let don't get any ink in your eyes right he said don't you know don't read the the, the paper don't listen to the people because uh, they're going to tell you how great you are. You're not as good as you think you are. That's another lesson that Mr. Hendrick told me. It's one of, the, <laughs> one of my favorites. He told me, he said, hey, you're never as bad as you think you are and you're never as good as you think you are. <laughs> I was like, yes, sir. You should know stick. Check. <laughs> Got it. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, to me, and that builds a tight bond with a team through failure. If you can stick together, have no ego, don't point fingers, collectively try to improve and come out of the rubble, you know, come out of the fire, that's when you've got a good team. So I think when you fail, when you lose, the learning episodes or events or however you want to describe it are really apparent and, and you just have to take advantage of that um, because most likely what you, what you lost in is probably apparent if you if you don't look at it with bias or an ego and say hey realistically what happened here today and you can look at that honestly the areas you need to improve in are, are probably pretty obvious so then it's just about doing the work and if you do that continuously you lose 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 and you continuously get better get better get better get better you're eventually going to get there uh, and then I think it gets tough when you get to the top you have to you have to fend off a whole nother set of issues now right it's not about hey you're winning, so everybody's like, oh, great, this is the time to rest. And I've learned that in, in my career here in racing, like, that that doesn't exist. Like, as soon as you think you can take a break, you're gonna get beat. So you just cannot slow down. So uh, I think it's human nature when you work through those failures and you compete and you improve and you go through this cycle and then you get to the top, uh, and everybody's top can be a different scale, but you get to the top, the first thing you wanna do is go, and that's you're right back down to the bottom <laughs> starting over so you're again. saying that's the most dangerous spot is when you're at the top right uh, to me it is yeah, this, you know one of our favorite authors mm -hmm. james curry is one of his things is is when you're at the top of the game is when you need to change your game because Agreed. if it, once complacency sets in it's hard to root that out it is because yeah you get comfortable right you can't i don't like to have an environment in my team that's super hostile but i do like a slightly uncomfortable environment right i mean i don't think you need to be able to sit on the couch and feel like oh you know we got this but i don't want you to feel like you're getting shelled every two seconds either right you have to be in a position where it's like okay this is a, an un uncomfortably healthy environment right just enough discomfort and as soon as you get that comfort and, and winning can bring that because when you win you know chad walks in is like hey great job you guys are doing it marshall you're doing it 
It's like, man, I'm doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm there. Yeah, I'm, I'm there. there. <laughs> then you go the next week and you're like, oh, oh shit, I'm not doing it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you just got to be careful of that. And and I think it's in my experience, and in just maybe the way I'm wired, I enjoy the grind and I enjoy like, hey, if somebody beats me of Cliff or whoever, like they did something like kudos, like I, I respect that, like cool. But the next thing is like, okay, I've got to do this X, Y, Z. Like I enjoy that that challenge and, 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 that, and that fight. I think it's, to me, it's a little bit tougher to say, hey, you just won, you know, we went, we went on a streak just last year. We went, we were first or second for I think six, six races in a row, right? So it's tougher for me to walk in the room and say, y'all suck. Like, we got to be better than this. You know, like, I'm, being, I'm, I'm being, obviously, you know, I'm joking. But it's harder to motivate in that situation, I think, than it is to motivate when you're getting beat. Yeah. In our kind of line of work, preparation is absolutely critical. Um, I kind of, for, for our listeners, um, you know, preparation could be, you know, a rock a rehearsal of concepts drill. But you, you essentially have, uh, have a mission to go out on to accomplish something. You know, a lot of times it's to go, could be go kill, capture somebody. It could be go to disrupt something, uh, to destroy or eliminate something on the battlefield. Uh, kind, of, kind of a plethora of things you, you prepare. The preparation that goes into it is one, it's kind of visualization. What are you going to accomplish and what will you need to accomplish that task at hand? And that's, it goes into uh, making sure everybody on the team knows the plan, knows their part in the plan, knows the person to your right and left what their role is in the plan in case you know there something happens to them and then what you do as far as uh, when you do hit success and it's a good mission or when something goes wrong and we run through a lot of rehearsals 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 because that really does breed out the contingencies you have to think about it's also stress inoculation right it's what it is completely and it makes sure that everybody is prepared as possible understands their specific role um, and then it's chaotic when you get there. You've got things, you've got machines, you've got helicopters, you have people, you have different languages, you have the elements. And I, what I liked uh, when Marshall kind of uh, mentioned this one time is when you guys go out and compete, it's not a 50, it's, it's not a 100 yard you know, field that is replicated across the country. Every track is different, every environment's different. The, the weather, um, all, all the kind of environmental factors are different. So I'd love to kind of get your guys' take as, you know, crew chiefs leading these teams. What do you guys do to prepare each week? What does that look like? And then would love to kind of talk through what game day looks like as far as track yeah. looks like for you guys. Too. Tremendous amount of preparation. Uh, years ago, and, and Cliff can probably talk about this just a little bit, we started to um, – so we're, we're rolling into the beginning of our season right now. The Daytona 500 is right around the corners next week, right? And uh, years ago, we – decided, okay, as an example, we're going to load up our transporter, we're going to load up our race car, and we are going to take our transporter off-site prior to the Daytona 500 week, and we're going to completely lay out our garage area, we're going to completely have all of our tools, all of our equipment, our engineers with their computers, our drivers with their fire suits and their underwear, the whole thing, and we're going to go through and we're going to do a mock test day for setup. Then we're all going to take notes on it. And then we're all going to come home, and then we're going to vet it out, and we're going to look, okay, we didn't do this right, we didn't do this, we could improve upon that, and we're going to get all that stuff squared away before we go to Daytona. Two weeks ago, we did the exact same thing with all of our pit boxes. If you watch a NASCAR race, you'll see on pit road, up and down pit road, there's these massive boxes where 
the engineers, the crew chiefs, and special invited guests get to sit up on top of the uh, the pit box and watch the event, watch pit stops live right there on pit road, which is pretty exciting. So cool. And there's a tremendous amount of telemetry and, and monitors and data feeds and, you know, the, oh yeah, and they have to communicate across one another and back here to home base. So last Friday, we actually set up all of the pit boxes for all four teams out in the parking lot with all of the equipment and did a full drill right there with that. So that's just with the equipment side of things, making sure that we're ready to go race. You can take it to the next lap. Um, we talk about our pit crews. We have pit crew practice every single week. The guys are usually here four days a week, whether they're training or actually practicing live pit stops. One of those days is a full dress day. And uh, during that day, the support staff from the race teams, Allen's guys and Cliff's guys and and uh, the other two teams, they go down and they support the pit crew because it's not just a group of five pitting the car because you got five guys that go over the wall to service the vehicle, but that you have a whole group of guys that are helping those guys do their job, handing tires, exchanging tires, throwing hoses, washing the windshield, like all these things, you know, handing gas cans back and forth, like the choreography that happens throughout a nine second pit stop is astounding. and. It takes a tremendous amount of preparation. And then, you know, we can go back and you can talk about uh, race wins and opportunities that show up. I think we all agree that, that, you know, there's no such true thing as luck, right? Unless it's a really bizarre sort of circumstances. But opportunity and preparation, yes. right? When that opportunity shows up, if you're prepared and you're ready to take and, and leap on that, that opportunity when it shows up, that's how you win races. That's how you win championships, or at least get yourself in position to do that. So, these guys they go through and they they will they'll bring a car back from the racetrack that's got damage on the right front, and they'll get all of their crew together and they'll go out there with sawzalls and tools and hammers and cut the components off, exchange the components, just to get themselves familiar with doing those things. Uh, we've got very very short window for practice. These guys will sit down with their groups and they'll say, okay, we want to adjust shocks, we want to adjust sway bars, and they'll go through those drills in the shop just to make themselves more efficient because more time on the racetrack, that's 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 more leverage that you can get data, and they'll, they'll go through and do that. Instead of taking five minutes to do a change, if you can do it in two, right, that's three more minutes on the racetrack, mm, yeah. and that's value. So these guys do all of those things, and I probably talked too much about it, but I, the reason why I've mentioned it is because Cliff just did this last week, and I was talking with some of his guys, and I thought it was pretty awesome what they were able to do. Yeah, and I think everything you just described is spot on. The other angle to throw into all this, too, and you touched about it, is the different environmental factors, different tracks, the different weeks that we go to. Um, so there really is nothing more valuable than your experience, than the, the empirical data that you capture while you're, while you're doing it. And so, um, you know, our after action reviews, our debriefs, whatever you want to call it, are so critical for us just on the weekly cadence um, of capturing all the things that you do do well, maybe don't do well in execution, what factors are unique to that event, unique to that race, you know, particular tire, different track geometry configuration, whatever it may be. So everything that Chad just walked through is so much of the, the physical labor side of things, of the doing thing. Uh, doing things in, in execution. The other piece of it for us that's very critical, like I'm you know starting to get into, is is what to look for, what to think about, what what are the things that you need to see when you're in the environment. And you know as you go through a season, you can start to categorize you know track types and, and you know a lot of this is learned through time and history just being in the sport. But sometimes those notes are so critical when just in your weekly cadence of a certain track type, you know we we classify them as short tracks, intermediate tracks, road courses, speedways, there are still many unique factors 
to individual tracks within a track type category. And without some of those after action notes and, and a lot of the, the references that, that we write down, take photographs, whatever it may be, you may forget what to look for one year later, one calendar year later when uh, you go to that yeah, track. Yeah. And oh wait, man, I forgot we wrote in our notes. And and then if you do that enough times, you start to see a trend over the years. Man, over the years at this track, man, I, th this is really something you have to look for that is an environmental factor or track factor, the, the tire that's unique to that track, whatever it may be. We have to look for that. We have to plan to tune around that. It may The track may change at the halfway point of the race. It may change a lot from one day to the next. You know, all these things that um, you have to weigh into your decision making and into your execution. So that what Chad just described of all of your, you know, physical manual labor actions, you know, are, are conducted in the right way based on what the environment may call for, what the track may call for, things like that. So we put a lot of emphasis and I, and I would say, you know, we, we've grown this a lot since I've been here of how we conduct our debriefs as a company and as teams and the sharing of those notes. Because like we talked about all the way back at the beginning of the, the podcast, nothing is more valuable to me outside of our own experience than knowing the experience of my teammates yes. and, and knowing what they saw and what they did because we're all trying to win the same race against the other same 30 something competitors and all of our experiences are so so different yet unified in, in what you, what the objective is for that day our experiences are so different that um, you know I walk away from our, our Tuesday morning debrief with the crew chiefs and, and the car chiefs and I will have 10 bullets in my notebook that I wrote from others experience not of my own and that is so valuable. That's fascinating too. I really like that. This is what I'm getting because it sounds like a lot like we do, right? Heavy assessments, mm -hmm. no complacency, just assessing everything, coming back, discussing it, visualizing through it, going out, practicing it in its individual parts, and then a full-scale dress rehearsals over and over and over again, then the race, and then it's rinse and repeat all over again. Is that basically yeah. it, right? What's, sounds, what's even sounds, more? Sounds the military to me. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I haven't been in the military, so I don't know. I'm a casual observer, of course. But what Cliff is talking about is absolutely true. The way these guys debrief and, and they go through their notes and they all do it at different levels. Like Alan writes you know, around the perimeter of a sheet of paper, right? To get all of his notes. And Cliff does it a little bit differently. Like everybody's unique in that. But what's really interesting is they dig out their notes and then they watch the races leading up to the event, mm. right? So they're all debriefing with their engineers and their teams and their drivers. And in the background, they've got the Daytona 500 from last year and the year before, maybe the year before that playing just in case, man, there's a little nugget like, oh, man, I forgot about that. You know, mm -hmm. that track started to come up at that point. There's going to be a patch right there next year or whatever that may be that they may be missed. Like these guys are pounding and pounding data as much as they possibly can, not only what's in front of them, but on the periphery to make sure that they're as prepared as they possibly can be to go to the racetrack. Nice. So you guys keep those lessons learned for a while then, huh? Like years back? Years. You better, yeah. 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 Yeah, that's where that experience is key. And the only thing I'll add to it, I think these guys have done a great job, but, you know, time's finite. So, you, you know, I think the obvious thing that you say, oh, you know, you need to be prepared and people want to kill it with brute force, but it, at some point in time you need to be focusing your effort on really what is the highest, uh, you know, probability target, right? And I have a, a term that I like usually, similar to what you said, like I like look for the lowest common denominator. Like that's what I always – tell my guys right so we want to focus our efforts on the things that have the highest percentile of hitting right mm -hmm. so you can focus your efforts across all these things if you have a you know infinite amount of money and time but you don't 
<laughs> so you need to do a really good job at focusing your efforts and your preparations on really what's going to matter. And I think that's kind of the next level of when you when you get to a point of being really, really prepared, you're, you're concentrating your efforts on high percentage targets. I like that. And doing that simplifies things a lot. Huge difference between simple and easy, right? What we do is incredibly difficult. But with what Alan is describing, and, and this is what he, he and I share in this and what we've been describing with our teams, when you hit the high, high probability targets and, and you identify those and know how to look for it, you just simplified the mission. You mm. said, like, the cars are complicated, the crews are complicated, choreography, everything, travel, different environments, so many things that can make what we do so difficult, which it is, but you can still simplify within that. Doesn't make it easy, makes it simpler <laughs> to go hit the hit the target, yeah. you know, achieve the mission. I'm loving it, Cl Cliff. You've got kind of a lot of the military vernacular already, already ingrained, man. You sure you don't have any prior service? Or <laughs> I don't, brag? I don't, no. <laughs> not to downplay, uh, you know, Sunday or race day for you guys. It's not, it's not chaotic, right? It's not loud. There's not distractions. <laughs> there's not spectators. There's not media. There's not people, you know, there's not all sorts of the other peripheral things that happen. Uh, obviously, I'm just kidding there, but an extremely competitive environment that you all are in. Organized chaos, uh, or does chaos, at least in the peripheral, y'all are organized to orchestrate your teams to best compete. How do you stay focused, and how do you kind of manage those secrets in the wide open? Talk to us about that. Yeah, you just got to hide in plain sight, right? I mean, I think that's the biggest thing. You've got to be super comfortable. All those things don't matter. Uh, you only can control what you can control, right? And that's what you have to focus on controlling. And then ultimately, uh, you know, you're going to be if 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 you're trying to to if you're super uh, concerned over, hey, you know, we've got this part and we don't want anybody to see it, and we're doing these things to prevent it, and we cover our car with a tarp, and like it's just like a big billboard. Like, look here, right? So you have to be just super comfortable that you've done the best job, you've prepared the best, you've got the best piece you can have, uh, and you're gonna go execute accordingly, like this is standard ops and all's good. And I think if you do that, and that's the body language that you represent, and that's how you, uh, what you convey, then then most likely that's what you're going to, uh, people are gonna believe. So I think the environment you touched on, you get to a point where, you know, you just, yeah, you just don't pay any attention to any of it regardless None of the noise, none of the, the circumstances, any, somebody else crashed or somebody else has issues, you know, you're just completely honed in on what you can do to help yourself and your team succeed. That, I mean, that's, that's stress inoculation. That's uh, what kind of Chuck just mentioned a little bit earlier. And that doesn't happen uh, you know, instantaneously. That's learned over time. It's absolutely. It's learned over time, yeah, and I think you have to carp <laughs> Compartmentalize. Thank you. I keep, <laughs> I keep hearing myself say it. I'm like, oh, this is I'm not used to this podcast thing, but yeah, exactly. So, and I think just focusing on, on what you know you need to do, and and uh, I always tell my guys like, you know, play your position, right? And mm -hmm. I use this analogy all the time because we have this happen in our company a lot. You know, it's never your fault, right? It's typically what happens if if you get to a situation where there's five people involved. Usually, it's not. They're like, this guy didn't do this, or this guy didn't do this, and this guy didn't do this. Like, that's the first example. I make a joke around here. You know, the aerodynamicists always say it's the engine department's fault. The engine department always say their chassis are no good, and our vehicle dynamics are no good, right? Well, we're doing the best we can do. No, play your position. Like, if somebody throws the base, if you're the second baseman, and so somebody throws the ball to second base, you need to be at second base, right? Do the best you can on your job, play your position. Don't worry about if your partner's doing what he's supposed to do. You have to accept that he's doing everything he can do. First baseman's doing their job, second baseman, so on and so forth, right? So just do your job. And in those hectic environments, just focus on that basic. 
right? That's how you can break it down, you can simplify. Do your job, do your specific job. If you do that, and everybody does that, then 99 times out of 100, we're gonna be okay. Alan says, uh, hide in plain sight to your question about, um, you know, how to do, how do we do all of these things out on, you know, kind of a pretty public setting, you right. know, with me and everybody else around. Um, he says, hide in plain sight, I, I tell my team our, our process is the camouflage. If you're so versed in your process, and it may be something new and tricky you're doing that week, whatever it is, all the things that we've discussed leading up to, to this point of our conversation, um, the rehearsal, the planning, the notes, all of those things, and if you have the right communication around that, the process is the camouflage because everything looks so normal, so natural, you can almost make it seem nonchalant. And, and, and the teams that I've been on and experienced you know, competition with, they look the most relaxed in the setting, but they're also the highest performing teams, but that's because everyone is so well communicated to from all the little specifics of the process, of the choreography, of the preparation, that when you go do it, it's like, yeah, this we're, we're so versed at it, we're all playing our role, you know, you can't go to step two unless you do step one. You know, we, we've we've rehearsed, we've we've planned, we've done all the things that when you get there, people are like, man, how do they, how do you perform at such a high level so consistently? The process is the camouflage. And if you have the process built right, people can't see it. Well, Cliff, uh, just to kind of caveat on that, that really plays into the first rule of special forces, which is always look cool. <laughs> it's, it's, it's always look cool never get lost is rule number two and rule number three is if you ever do get lost just look cool <laughs> but to kind of tie that together awesome. is you know seeing you guys on the track and seeing you guys in in the zone you, you look confident you look cool you you look very calm cool and collected even with the chaos going on around and that's not uncommon to to kind of you know view you know, for example, I've, I've seen kind of the, the helmet cam footage from uh, some of, you know, Chuck Ritter's uh, recent combat missions and the guys staying calm, cool and collective under fire, under duress in order to mess, communicate with others, make decisions and articulate what's going on so they can get out of a bad situation and take care of business. But that's exactly what you're talking about right now is, you know, you, you look that part because you are confident, you're confident, you trust the people around you. And um, yeah, you're, everyone's going to do their specific role and play their specific position to the best of their abilities that day. I want to hit on that. So these principles right there, they're universal. And same thing in comedy. Like, oh, how is your team so calm, cool, collective, and everything's going going to hell? The reality is the human body is not that complex either, right? The, auto, the, the nervous system, parasympathetic, sympathetic is what it is. Your body does certain things under stress, but the fact that you visualize and then you guys practice this stuff over and over and over again, when it comes to game time, it's automated and it allows you the mental bandwidth to think about the things you do need to think about but you ingrain into the system because that's what we talk about the stress inoculation where your body just does and you're already used to it so your body's not having that stress response stress response happens when you come across something that's unfamiliar or you haven't thought through it right so you can actually turn that off you're just creating a kill switch in yourself and i think the principles between what you guys are doing are exactly between what we do like hey don't Practice this tourniquet over and over and over again. Practice this simple thing, load in this radio until you can do it. Okay, you can do it now, let's do it on the clock. Let's yeah. do it under stress to where you are a little stressed and that way when you do it for real, you're like, oh, no, this is just what we do. Now, oh, I wasn't expecting this, but okay, let's think, do this thing. I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, this is centuries old. I mean, you're all going right. all the way back to the art of war and mm -hmm. Sun Tzu, right? Sun Tzu. I mean, it's, it's, this is not new practice. Like it's, the, the, the problem is, is being diligent in the process. And not being complacent, right? Not being complacent, yeah. right. You know, following through with all of these things. 
Cliff, if he doesn't read his notes and do his diligence every single week, guess what? He's not going to perform at that level every single week, right? It's just, you know, Allen not holding his guys accountable every single week. He's not going to perform every single week, right? But what it is is they do. And they do. And, you know, it's it's just that's all there is to it. And just because you did doesn't matter because nobody cares what you did yesterday, right? Exactly. It's just like what Marshall said earlier, right? When we fly home on Sunday, we know if we did our jobs or not. Plain and simple, right? And that's that's just the facts, right? And you it, just have to be diligent about what you do. It really is the basics, right? I mean, that's I think people get too asphyxiated on some mm-hmm. vision of grandeur. It's not. It's the basic things. It's hard work. It's treating each other correctly it's making good decisions it's you know all those checking things. that ego like you said so you the, the, the basics aren't too cool right yeah the ego is <laughs> the biggest waste of time in the world right i mean people and and we we deal with that a lot right i mean we're you have a bunch of alphas that come together sure. to compete and then we have to compete against each other and then against everybody else and everybody wants to be the favorite son like they can tell you they don't they do like everybody does <laughs> we all accept that but, you know, you just have to be able to set your ego aside. And, and you, you know, if you do that and you work hard and you do the right things, you're going to get your fair share, probably more than your fair share, because somebody else is going to let their ego get in the way. So, uh, yeah, I think the ego is the biggest waste of time. I've seen that happen. And people who have that, it'll always be a limiting factor. Somebody I, told me once a genius is a master of the obvious. Mm. Like that. That applies. <laughs> to go with. If if you're not sitting at home or listening to this podcast and just impressed that we're we, we have some of these amazing quotes and the VP of competition for Henrik Motorsports just also quoted Sun Tzu. <laughs> you got something coming at you. Like this like the philosophical discussion that you guys bring to the table right now, like it's impressive. It's incredibly impressive. I, we see a lot of the parallels in what we try to do, but you know, a special forces team or within army special operations, our three tribes are uh, civil affairs, psychological operations, and special forces, all different tool sets, different teams, but they all kind of collaborate together for a common goal. But um, really what you guys are talking about is uh, is really kind of honing in on those, some of those things that we try to preach and realize. But we, we wear a, you know, a tab or something that says special on it. But what we try to ensure, though, is that we focus on the basics. And if you can master those basics, you are going to be very, very well prepared for when stuff goes sideways. It doesn't matter how good you were at the basics yesterday, because what are you bringing to the table today? It doesn't matter how awesome you were yesterday, how awesome are you today, right? What are you bringing that's, that's going to be for the benefit of more than just yourself? I think that's the key, especially when people walk around the tab on the Green Beret, like, oh, I'm cool. It's like, like you said, you're not as cool as you think you are. <laughs> <laughs> In our environment, to be honest, and Chuck kind of hits on this in some of our previous podcasts, it allows us the opportunity to hang out with other phenomenal individuals who've done something decently challenging, but you get to be around those people and you get to have them push you on a daily basis to be better and you get to be part of that conversation to help push them to be better too. It's just an, all it is is a hall pass to get in the door yeah. to be part of something that's awesome, right? Same thing with probably that jacket, right? That's just a hall pass to get in here <laughs> and do awesome stuff with awesome people every day. Um, but I do, I do got one last big topic that I want actually Marshall to hit, which is the word that you hit on when we were walking around earlier, which was vincimus. Is that how it, is that pronounced right? Yeah, yes. I'm, so on the wall in our operations center, we all came together, and we had to l- think and look at how to operate really differently. I mean, and think about it. This place has been super successful for a long time with siloed operations, where that crew chief has a crew of people, and you know they get engines and cars in there, and it's a vacuum. Like, well, we'll see at the racetrack. Hope hope everything works out. So as we tried to come together and build 
you know, several years ago, more continuity and mutual support in the organization. We had to think about things differently. And so up on the wall in that in that center where we support the teams at the track from back here at Hendrick, it says, together we conquer. And that really was a rallying kind of statement that, um, you know, if we want to move past being winners or even champions and per- perpetuate and continue to become a dynasty or a conqueror in our sport, then that's going to have to be done together. That's not possible standing on your own. And we got that actually from a, a coin that General Mulholland shared with us one time, Simul Vincimus. I think it's a Latin phrase. And it's really interesting if you look at those word derivatives, the translation is together we conquer. But that word simul in Latin, it also speaks to simultaneous, right, or similar. So this is more than just together, right? We're talking about together at the same time in the same direction. So we really broke that down and tried to understand, man, that is exactly a way we will differentiate ourselves in competition is having kind of coordinated effects across all four teams when we can. And the other part of that, Vincimus, is really cool. That is, uh, you know, that's, that translates to conquer. But it also is the derivative word for vineyard or a vine um, or vanquish. And so we want to talk about just being more than winners, right? That vineyard, all those vines are coming together, growing together in such a way that it creates this single organism, an impenetrable wall, right? If you think about those vineyards with all the vines over years and years, get so bound up that you just kind of remove the competition's will to try to compete against something like that. Now that's an aspirational goal that, you know, I don't know if we'll ever get there, Alan, to your point. But boy, if you put something up on the wall and say, that's what we want to build at Hendrick Motorsports, that's it. That's it. We want to be um, more than just winners. We really want to um, have a dynasty. And, and, and that's, that's what we're charged with doing. And we're fortunate to work for a couple people in Rick Hendrick and Jeff Gordon. They don't hold back any resources, right? So yeah. there's excuse number one, I don't have the time or money to do that. That's off the table, <laughs> right? You're ready to attack it, so it's, it's fun. It's a, it's a very special place to work. And again, I just want to reiterate how incredibly thankful we are for your community, for our military at large across all of the components, um, what those folks do, what their families do, nothing that we hold dear, nothing that's important to us would be possible without that safety and security. So just a tremendous gratitude across our organization for, for your community and, and our uh, defenders at large. That means a lot. Thank you guys very much. Anything else you guys want to you want to hit on before before we uh, wrap up? No, thanks for having us. Yeah, it's been great. We didn't get to hear any war stories, but we'll uh, save those. Those can be done. Those are the other day, I guess. Yeah. Thanks for having us. It was great. Well, he didn't. You know, he hasn't mentioned it yet, but he tells everybody that he's a combat diver. I don't know why he didn't mention it during this podcast, but <laughs> that's like a big thing, and especially for like, yeah, I'm a combat diver. I'm better than that's the that's the ego thing. Like that's the, ego. the dive teams, like I. I am better than everybody. That's the way they view the world. And there's nobody that's better than me. <laughs> so, Bobby, you also oh, speak. Good. I, I do see that yeah. there's a good banter in the, yeah. in the special forces as well, apparently. A little ribbing seems I, to go I on didn't get any officer points for this one, so I really appreciate yeah. that, Chuck. Yeah. Bobby, you're, <laughs> real. you're a combat diver, and you also speak which foreign language? Uh, Tagalog. 
Tagalog. Okay, anyone, any of my teammates know where that's spoken? I have, I have no idea. I do not. So know. impressive individuals here with Bobby and Chuck. Thank we'll you be guys. Googling Tagalog here in about three minutes. <laughs> yeah, need to check our spelling. Now. Yeah. yeah. No, guys, this was an absolute blast. Truly, really appreciate you guys coming into Pineland Underground, giving us some insights into the culture, into your specific kind of roles and leadership attributes that you bring to the team. And uh, we're excited for you guys going forward in the 2023 season. We wish you all the best of luck. Give them hell. Have fun. And uh, just thanks for uh, spending some quality time with Chuck and I. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Right it's been a blast. I'll just say, like, I kind of messed up coming here. I got yelled at because I was trying to blend in. So I pulled up. I was dressed different. I had a trucker hat on. I came in my RV. Um, had some bush beer. <laughs> and Bobby's like, no, nah, that's, that's not how they do business here. That's, that's, <laughs> you really did watch that movie, didn't you? Thank <laughs> <laughs> you, Bobby, over here. What do we do with my hands? <laughs> we would have enjoyed that, though. Like, that's, that's not a bad thing. All right, guys, this is awesome. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank yeah, right you. On. Thanks for joining us today in Pineland Underground, the U.S. Army John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center and Schools official podcast. Please tune in to our next episode. We release episodes every two weeks. You can reach us at pinelandunderground at gmail.com. Check it out.